And now, deep thoughts. You are listening to the Deep Thoughts Podcast, where we explore one aspect of the Christian faith a little more deeply. I'm your host, Matt Schantz, and in this episode, I am talking about an often neglected fruit of the Spirit, self-control, with my guest, Drew Dick. Drew is an acquisitions editor at Moody Publishers and contributing editor at ctpastors.com. He wrote Generation X Christian, Why Young Adults Are Leaving the Faith, He also wrote Yawning at Tigers, great name, Yawning at Tigers, You Can't Tame God, So Stop Trying. His latest book is Your Future Self Will Thank You, Secrets to Self-Control from the Bible and Brain Science, which will be the subject matter of our conversation today. So let's get started. Hey, Drew, thanks so much for coming on our podcast. Well, Matt, thank you so much for having me on. And I feel like this is this is a heavenly moment because I get to talk to a fellow Canadian. Yes. Get back to my roots. <laughs> uh, Canada called, and this is your civic duty. You're supposed to uh, at least do the occasional Canadian <laughs> podcast. So thank you. Happy to do it. <laughs> hey, so you're in uh, publishing for Moody, and interestingly enough, I just interviewed Micah Fries on his book, Leveling the Church, for the podcast recently, and I believe you had a part to play in publishing that book, right? I did, yes. I love Micah, um, and that's a great book. Yeah. Um, I was actually the acquiring editor on that one, so I know it well. Um, and yeah, definitely in that church leaders space, but it's a book I'm hoping a lot of church leaders will uh, read and benefit from. And Micah is a great guy, like I said, and he is, I don't know if you know this, he's six foot six. So he's not a small man. <laughs> I, I, I gathered that from uh, from uh, looking him up and stuff. He just towers over everybody else. Sure, I thought either, either he's yeah. really tall or his wife is four feet tall, which, you know, I didn't know which was which. So. Um, <laughs> Yeah, yeah, he probably makes people look short. And we were reading that as pastors, actually. We were starting to read it as pastors before the whole uh, COVID thing. Um, and so we've just taken a pause yeah. on that. But it is kind of our, our team's book right now. And uh, yeah, we, we were really enjoying it. Um, before we get to your latest book, I, I'd love to just ask you about your key findings from what I find to be a really important book, your first book, Generation X Christian. Um I'm just wondering, what would be the key finding in terms of why young adults are leaving and tend to not be coming back? And then what would your word be to a local church like ours in terms of responding to that? Maybe we could call it a crisis even. Yeah, no, um, that's a great question. And I think it is a crisis. You know, I got um, some pushback when I initially wrote that book. That was 2010, uh, because some people said, oh, you know, at the time, the statistic I was citing was that 22% of young adults, 18 to 29, uh, claimed to have no religion whatsoever. Um, and that was up from 11% just 10 years previous to that. And a lot of people said, you know, that's just a blip. It'll come back down for some reason for this, you know, one moment in time, more young people are, are ditching religion altogether. 
Well, uh, this is one case I really do hate to be right, uh, but according to the latest Pew Forum uh, report, that number now is at around 40%. Uh, so that was actually just the beginning of a much larger trend of young people uh, ditching religion altogether. And of course, in America, that usually means maybe they grew up in the church, at one point identified as a Christian, perhaps, and then walked away. As far as what causes it, man, there's a lot. But I, if I would, if I had to just isolate one variable, it would be this, the importance of intergenerational relationships. Uh, Fuller um, Youth Institute a while back did a great study looking at 500 young people that grew up in the church, and they looked at all these different variables um, when it came to involvement in youth group, when it came to, you know, did they go on missions trips, all these things. And the one thing that, that was most predictive of young Christians that would actually retain their faith through high school, through college, and into uh, you know, their young adult years, was whether or not they had uh, meaningful connections to older Christians. So whether they, they worshiped with older Christians, for one, and whether they had those just relationships, it could be their parents, but also other Christians, too. Because I think what so often happens uh, in the church is that, and youth group's great. I'm all about youth group. It's, it's awesome. Uh, it has a huge formative spiritual influence for so many people. But if the only connections that teenagers have are to each other and to their youth pastor, and they don't, they're not integrated into the life of the church, when they go off into the work world or to college, sometimes they just disengage from the church altogether. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's that's one thing I would say. And and the good news for churches, you know, I think a lot of churches think, oh, I gotta we gotta hire some really hip, uh, you know, pastor that's all tatted up and and you know. We're skinny jeans um, <laughs> to reach young people, uh, and, uh, and then you see a lot of old fat pastors trying to squeeze into skinny jeans. Um, but the, the problem is, you know, in addition to kind of looking pathetic, uh, when you do that, it actually what really makes the difference is old, boring Christians like myself who are actually willing to take an interest in young people and just kind of be present in their lives. That's really what makes the difference. That's really helpful. It's really in- it's it's interesting because we've age bracketed so much ministry in the church today, right? Especially in the evangelical circles, yeah. not only youth group, but we separate the kids, we separate the youth, and then we have a young adult ministry, and then we get people into life groups or small groups, and 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 people tend to oh well, let can I be in a young family one? And and before you know it, you're you're always looking around at the people in the exact same stage as you, which in that research is showing there's some detriment to that, right? We're better off, um, yeah, mixing the generations and, and leaning on each other for the gifts that, and stages of life that we all, you know, that are actually various, right? You nailed it. That's totally right. Um, and, and we do it not just by age, but like you said, by life stage or, or you know, it, oh, here's a married group, here's an unmarried group, here's singles, here's this. Right. Uh, yep. And I understand sometimes that's helpful, right? Um, and there's a place for that, as long as it doesn't come at the expense of, of uh, having relationships across those divides. I saw one person <laughs> online who's, who said, I'm in this, this group for young married couples, and we're all sitting there, we've all been married less than two years, and at one point, we just said, we need someone who's been married like 20, 30 years 
to tell us what's coming. We don't know. We're just sitting there kind of pulling our ignorance. (laughs) And they were desperate for that older couple that could help them out. Um, And so sometimes I think as well-intentioned as those, yeah, those segmented ministries are, they can have some some unintended uh, ugly consequences if they're not careful. Right. Oh, that's really helpful. Hey, as an acquisitions editor, Drew, I I was just wondering if I could maybe pitch some of my book ideas to you. Is that all right? Yes. Okay. Let's get them all out on the table. This is what I do, man. You right. know, everyone has a book. <laughs> so the first one that, that's really been on my heart for a long time is called On Humility, from the best person I know on the subject, myself. <laughs> I love it. Yeah? Okay, and, and this is kind of... the most I, humble I, guy on the planet. Sit at my feet and learn from me. And uh, yeah, so this is, I have kind of a trilogy in mind. So the first one's on humility. The second one is on being really good looking. And then it's, it's just a natural follow-up. And then interestingly, though, the third one that I had always wanted to write was on self-control and other things I've mastered. But now I, I feel like you, it would be oversaturating the market because you just did a book on self-control. So... Um, anyways, those are my yeah, ideas. I'm sorry. And you know what? That second one too. The second one too. I'm sorry. I've got to take that one. I think that's what I was <laughs> to write. Maybe, <laughs> maybe maybe co- co-author. Could I get a co-author in there? Um, I don't know if, <laughs> if that works. I okay. think there can only be one. No, uh, but <laughs> I, I, have you gotten any like when when people hear that you wrote a book on self-control? Is there always this assumption like like what do you know about that, or are you telling me you've mastered that? Like, what gives you the right to write on that? Have you had any of that? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Some people like um, I had one person say. Actually, I think this was before the book came out. They're like, dude, you realize this is a bad move. Like, writing a book on self-control, you're really setting yourself up for, I don't know, mockery or, um, yeah, because people go, okay, so you write a book on a topic, and there's an assumption that somehow you have mastered that topic. Uh, But, yeah, I I say repeatedly, this is not because I've I've mastered the, the topic, but actually because I desperately needed to. Um, this was a yeah. book that grew out of personal struggles, just going, man, I need to shore up my my uh, uh, self-control and be better in this area. And even after I've done a lot of research and thinking about the topic, um, man, I've definitely made some progress, but I'll tell you what, I'm not some sort of ninja-level uh, person of self-discipline and, and self-control, so sorry to disappoint you. Uh, but at the same time, it has been helpful. But sadly, I cannot say that I am the most self-controlled person on the planet. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, you know, <laughs> you know um, and you get into that in the introduction. Really, this book is born out of you desiring to grow at this in your own life and then coming to the place where you're like, oh, I've, I've really studied this. Maybe I should write it. Is that kind of how it came about? Yeah, that's right. In fact, initially, I wasn't even... Um, I wasn't even thinking of writing a book. I was reading a handful of books that were kind of on this topic, you know, on habits and willpower and grit and, you know, some of the bestsellers out there that people are familiar with. Um, And the reason I was doing that was just because I was trying to understand my own weak willpower and finding a lot of it really fascinating. Uh, And yet not really thinking beyond that. And then all of a sudden I was like, Hey, I wonder I started to look for stuff from a Christian perspective more, and there wasn't much, at least explicitly on this topic. 
And I thought, hey, maybe there's something here. Maybe I should write a book on this topic. And initially I thought, oh, man, it's a little boring. Self-control sounds very, uh, what's the word, Victorian or, you know, finger-wiggy. Um, and so I was a little nervous about the saleability of a book like this. And you know what? I found that actually people, they get it. They go, oh, I need that. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm weak in this area. Uh, it's not that I don't know the right things. It's that I can't get myself to do the right thing. And so I've actually been pleased by the response. Yeah, and you, you, you kind of make a case. We're going to talk about self-control for the remainder of this conversation. So, so how about you, you make a pitch? It's really, I think, your first chapter in the book. Make a pitch for self-control and, and why it actually leads. How self-control, in, in other words, restricting yourself in some ways, actually leads to freedom and flourishing. How's that work? Yeah, yeah, right. And I think it is a little counterintuitive because in our culture, we're not really about self-control. We're more about self-expression and kind of do what you want and and uh, fulfill your desires. And, you know, there's a place for that. Uh, but the truth is, <laughs> if you go fulfilling all your desires, especially in the moment, uh, it leads to a pretty miserable life. Yeah, you gain weight, you pile up credit card debt, you lose your job. I mean, it can get pretty bad, right? If you just do what is easiest or most pleasant in the immediate. So actually a life of, and this is the irony of this thing, because it seems restrictive to exercise self-control. Uh, but the truth is, as you are able to do that and to pour yourself into the things that are truly meaningful and important and are right and avoid destructive, sinful temptations, uh, your life actually opens up. It enables you to do more for others. It, it And it, from a Christian perspective, of course, it helps you fulfill the, the two greatest commandments, and that is to love God and to love others. And I talk about this in the introduction. For everything you want to do, whether you want to be generous or honest or kind, any sort of you know virtue you want to cultivate in your life demands suspending your own uh, sinful impulses in order to put others first. Right? Mm-hmm. You can't be faithful to your spouse without self-control. You can't be honest and kind without self-control. And so... It's just a crucial part of life, and I find it so often what's missing isn't knowledge, you know? I mean, most of us, I mean, sometimes it is, especially if you're like a brand-new baby Christian, you need to learn, okay, what's right and what's wrong? What does God require of me? What am I supposed to do? Um, then you need some knowledge. But often, you know, we know what God wants us to do, uh, at least maybe not in the particular, but he, we know how He wants us to live. And so that's not the issue. Uh, and we might even be inspired to do that. Yeah, we want to do it, but then often we don't follow through on those things, not because we don't have information or inspiration, but because we don't have self-control. And that was the realization I came to, that that I really need to improve in this kind of fundamental area in order to live the life that God's called me to live. Mm-hmm. That's good. Because self-control has got to be one of the most neglected fruit of the Spirit, Right. Uh, and, and I think neglected in yeah. terms of teaching on it in the church, um, or maybe it, it, it's often poorly taught about in the church, like just do these things, but um, mm. and, and mm-hmm. maybe not in a helpful or gracious way, but also in terms of focus on it and application of it in the Christian life. Like why, why do you think, and, and you kind of spoke to it a little bit in our cultural moment and our, 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 our desires, but, but why is it so neglected? Yeah. I, well, I think you touched on it already, already, and that is it's so easy to get wrong um, when you teach on it, because you can kind of fall into two two camps. You can kind of go, 
the legalistic route where you where you just kind of reduce Christian faith to this list of do's and don'ts. Mm. And listen, you need to have self-control. It's important. You know, we, we need to, um, you know, never mess up and, and just do the right thing and and somehow convey the message, even if unintentionally, that God's love <laughs> is contingent upon your behavior. Um, and, and, of course, that's wrong for so many reasons. Um, and then the opposite error, which I see actually, I think, just as prevalently, is to disregard it altogether, kind of ignore it, maybe for fear of legalism, right? Where we just say, hey, listen, man, it's all grace. God loves you. Jesus has forgiven you. Uh, and now you can just kind of rest in that, and you don't have to really worry about living a life of self-control. And that sounds good. It sounds spiritual even, that sort of passivity. But then you read so many passages in the Bible, especially where Paul talks about struggling and striving and battling the flesh and running the race and winning the prize and, um, uh, and, and mortifying the flesh, you know, to use the old-fashioned language. Uh, and so that's all there, too. And so there's a lot of confusion around this, and I think that's why it's difficult to teach about. But, man, if you want to teach the whole counsel of God, if you want to, um, just as importantly, lead people to live a life uh, that, that honors Christ and, and enables them to love God and to serve their neighbors— Self-control is a huge part of that. And like you said, you know, it's, it's one of the fruit of the Spirit that we see in Galatians 5. Uh, love, joy, peace, like right alongside those other big ones. And I don't know why exactly it's in that list, but I think it's part of the reason is what I said, and that is because it enables you to do those things, to embody those virtues and ideals. Uh, without those things, it uh, becomes very difficult. And at the same time, this is an important thing, too. It's a fruit of the Spirit. And Paul's using a metaphor there in the same way that a, a tree or a plant has to be connected to the ground in order to produce fruit. We have to be connected to God's Spirit if we're going to see these things grow in our life. So it's not just a matter of white knuckling it, you know, pulling yourself up by your spiritual bootstraps and saying, I can do this on my own. It really is a matter of being connected to God's Spirit, allowing Him, cooperating with His Spirit to see the fruit of self-control grow in your life. Yeah, that's a, that's a really helpful biblical corrective to the two ditches you mentioned there of, of, of legalism on the one side and well there's, it's all grace it doesn't really matter what I do on the other um, you go on and to talk about in the book you, you explain you talk about willpower you talk about habit habits can you explain the relationship willpower and habits play into self-control yeah sure you know one of the things that really got my attention early on researching this topic was the literature about willpower. And willpower, just to define it very simply, is um, the energy that you need to resist temptation or to do something very difficult. just takes willpower. And back, oh, 20 years ago or so, there was this landmark study uh, that basically proved that willpower is a finite resource. That is, it, it runs out. It's depletable. And study after study has shown this, that, that, you know, you might like to think that you could hold out against temptation uh, indefinitely or just do something difficult for an extended period of time. Uh, but the truth is, we get weaker as we go. And that's important when you think about the spiritual life, because you think, well, I resist a temptation once, I can do it again. Not necessarily. You're weaker the second time around. Hmm. And as a Christian, that wasn't a huge surprise to me, or it shouldn't have been, just because... Uh, that's, I think, uh, how Scripture describes us as these finite, fallen, weak creatures. Um, 
And then where, where habits comes into play, how it kind of relates to that topic, habits are just those automatic routines that you engage in. They can be very good, very bad, right? Uh, but you kind of do them without thinking. You're almost on autopilot because they're patterns that are ingrained in your life. Now, the beauty, though, of a good habit is that when you're in the middle of doing it, it actually isn't taking willpower. So willpower, this, this finite, limited, precious commodity that, that gets depleted pretty quickly, um, you want to preserve that. And, and establishing good habits in your life is a way to do that because when you're in the middle of doing them, you're not draining your willpower. Like the guy who wakes up every morning and runs five miles. That's not me, by the way. But, uh, you know, he's not slapping himself in the face going, oh, I need to do this. Come on. I can just, oh, man, this is so hard. You know, if he's been doing it for years, it's automatic. It's easy for him. Uh, for me, it'd be very difficult. Uh, but for him, it's automatic because it's a habit. And so that, that's the key, I think. I think the people that are living wholly healthy lives are the ones that have, through repetition, um, established these habits in their life where they just automatically open their Bible in the morning. And they pray to God almost without thinking when crisis arrives, arises in their life, who, who say no to the second dessert, <laughs> um, as a matter of course. Um, and, and so that, that's the goal. It's not just to out-muscle temptation at every turn, but it's to establish patterns in your life that, in a sense, can kind of carry you. That's good. Like, in a really, to use a dumb example, um, I have the desire to not eat the majority of a bag of chips nearly every night. And sometimes I have a bit of willpower, but there's absolutely no habit there. So I, I lose out most of the time, right? And so, um, how do you how do you how do you push that how do you push that forward? And, uh, and it, when you're living in that place, and maybe it can be more more sinister than that. Some some really bad habits in life. How do you how do you? There's a little bit of willpower or desire there. How, how do you start to work towards uh, replacing? Um, poor habits with healthy habits. Well, in that case, it's pretty easy. You could send the chips to me, and I'll take care of them. <laughs> um, no, yeah, that, that's great because, I mean, things might seem small, and it's true. I mean, I, I've I've taken a whole bag of cookies, okay, so I can definitely relate to this. Um, you know, or some people go, I want to stop biting my nails and things fall. But the truth is, if it's something that you kind of let go and you do it habitually, it's really irritating or even destructive. Um, and so, yeah, that's, that's a great question. Well, first thing I'd say, like, if something really has your number, if it's sort of a, like, for me, it's ice cream. Um, you know, if, if something in the house when it comes to eating is a huge temptation, uh, I would employ what researchers call a bright lines strategy. And that is hard and fast rule that eliminates temptation. So maybe for chips, and this is hard, you go, I don't have them in the house. Uh, I can eat them. If I go to someone else's house, I can eat them up from out and about. Um, or maybe I have them locked away somewhere where I can't access them so easily. Uh, and then that just eliminates the temptation. And then you eat something else uh, that maybe you're not as tempted to uh, binge on. Right. Yes. Um, and then the other thing, too, is, you know, back to the conversation about willpower. Often when, you know, you have those nights where, oh, I just had a handful of chips. OK, that was good. Other nights, maybe you cleaned up the whole bag. I'll bet I'm willing to bet on those days where you clean up the whole bag of chips. I know this is true in my own life. It's probably been a hard day. It's a day that depleted your willpower. 
um, where, where maybe you've made difficult decisions. That's another thing that really depletes your willpower, or you've had interpersonal conflict. Mm. And in the wake of that, you're incredibly vulnerable to temptation. You just don't have enough left in the tank to say, you know what, I'm going to eat healthily tonight. Um, and so when you're in those places, to be aware of it uh, and avoid the temptation altogether. Um, or uh, making a plan beforehand. So you go, you know, I'm going to have those chips tonight, but I'm going to have 12. You know, I'm going to count them out. I'm going to be, uh, you know, pre-commit going in to knowing how many I, I'm going to have rather than just going, I'm going to have some because one handful turns into two, t- turns into 10. Mm. And then all of a sudden you're looking at the bottom of an empty bag. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so exactly. a couple of, of uh, tactics there that you can employ. And you know, it's funny because some people think like, oh, you know, and, and when it comes to spiritual matters too, well, that sounds almost legalistic, you know, to kind of make these plans and these little life hacks and, but you know what? I think sometimes it's just wisdom. It's just planning ahead. It's making no provision for the flesh, to use the biblical language, <laughs> right? Yep. So that we're not uh, vulnerable in the moment. Yeah. I mean, w- one adjustment I started making is I just re- I-, I realized that the first thing I would do in the morning was turn and look at my phone. Um, or I used my phone as an alarm or whatever. And then you look at your phone and then you see that there's some social media posts and you see you have some email and some texts. And, and you start looking at stuff that that really isn't the kind of thing that is going to help you start your day with the Lord and, um, and that kind of thing. So I just started mm-hmm. I, I, every night, I, I, you know, whatever, I got a docking station down in the kitchen and my phone goes there downstairs and it, it obviously helps me form a better habit, the habit I want to have, which is not to look at my phone first thing in the morning, but to start the day in prayer and in the word and, and those kinds of things. And so, um, yeah, I, I get that. I'm not having as much success with the chips as the phone, but uh, anyways, there we go. <laughs> <laughs> well, man, that's a big one. No, that, that, that's huge for me, too. That was my thing. I, I wanted to start every day just by reading the Bible. I mean, not a ton, maybe a psalm or two. Um, but instead, I was reaching for my phone because it's right on my nightstand. I roll out of bed, and then I'd say, oh, yeah, I'll get to the Bible after, or I'll even look at my Bible app. But then you're right. I'd do the same thing you do. I'd check the news, check Twitter, which happens to be my kind of online vice. And then I'd get into my emails. And then all of a sudden you're getting work emails. And then a kid walks into the room and the day started. And guess what? I never got to the Bible. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I realized that I had this habit, which was really hard to break. And that is to just to kind of like instinctively reach for my phone first thing. Um, and I had to get that thing off my nightstand and replace it with my Bible. And just that little switch made a big difference. I mean, I still don't read my Bible every morning, uh, but a lot more than I ever did before. And so so that's important. Um, talk to me about this. We're so into quick fix and life hacks today <laughs> that we don't necessarily want to go through mm-hmm. a rigorous process to grow in self-control. Like we want the easy fix. So that's probably one of the unique challenges you are facing uh, in your own life, but writing about self-control today. So, so how did you go about addressing that? Yeah, well, um, it's funny to me because you're so right about the quick fixes and the life hacks, you know, um, I mean, sometimes there are little things you can do that actually do make a difference and that's fine. Um, but you know, you look at all the ads that you get inundated by on social media, on TV, and they're all promising in one way or another that you can do something simple that's going to make your life way better, right? Mm-hmm. You just do this one simple little trick, then all of a sudden you're going to be in perfect shape. Or you're going to, if you just get on the right dot, 
for your body type, for your blood type, for your personality, things are going to turn around. And it's hilarious to me because we fall for it over and over again. And I'm going, listen, I'm sure all the diets work. I'm sure Weight Watchers, Jenny Craig, you name it, they all work. Exercise plans, same thing. Bible reading plans work. <laughs> but what doesn't work is us. We don't have the self-control <laughs> to follow through on them. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so, but it's hilarious because we're out there searching for the, like, the shortcut, the yes. trick, yes. The, the whatever that's going to make it easier rather than turning the, the, the magnifying glass on our own hearts and going, you know what? The problem is me. So, I mean, that's the first thing, just to acknowledge that it's often a lack of self-control. And then, you know, back to the habits of just cultivating those simple but sometimes difficult habits in your life that can turn things around. Uh, researchers talk about what they call keystone habits, and that is these habits that are not only beneficial in and of themselves, but actually exert a positive influence across the spectrum of your life. So uh, one of those that, that we know is having family dinners together. Uh, is a keystone habit because it not only is it good to sit down and have a meal together, but it actually correlates with higher grades in your children, with better marriages, with all these other things, right? Um, and and we know, too, that prayer, meditation and prayer, that's a keystone habit. Uh, and, and this is secular research. This isn't Christian, you know, saying this. Uh, that if you just spend five minutes being still, and, and directing your thoughts towards God, not only is that beneficial in and of itself, but it actually makes you more productive in your work. It makes you more likely to eat well and exercise. So if you can kind of establish some of those kind of baseline routines in your life, it does kind of enable you to get some traction to turn your life around a little bit. Of course, it's all with God's help. It's not something you can do by yourself. Um, but just some of those changes can kind of get you moving in the right, right direction. So that's why I think it's so important to start your days the right way. Mm. You know, not putting prayer and Bible reading off to kind of a last thing right before you fall asleep, but actually doing it early to set the tone for the entire day. I always find it fascinating when the latest research affirms something we, we've seen in the that's been in the Bible for thousands of years, you know, like, um, <laughs> yeah. like, like God, God who made the family, you know, and it's like, and, and eating yeah. and eating. And it's like that the family should eat together is going to have massive effect or that communing with God. And we're told to pray and prayer has a massive effect on our, our physical, emotional, you know, spiritual well-being. Was, was there anything else because part of the subtitle about in your book is about uh, what brain science says about self-control. Would you, what would you say was the most fascinating research discovery you made preparing to write this book? Hmm, man, that's that's a good question. I mean, there's like some kind of cool stuff about mirror neurons that you know um, show that we are kind of wired to imitate the people around us and just showed me the importance of when it comes to this topic of self-control that we need to be around the right people. I think though what I found most fascinating was what's happening at the neurological level when a habit is being formed and why things are so difficult when they're brand new. Uh, so when you're first doing something that's unfamiliar to you, um, it, it requires this effortful, conscious sort of um, exertion on your part. 
And what's happening is that you're using the executive region, which is right behind your forehead in your brain, uh, to do that task um, or even to resist a temptation. But when you do that repeatedly, if you keep at it, and there's all kinds of literature saying how long does that take, uh, maybe, you know, at the very least a month, some people say as long as 66 days. But if, if you persevere through that window and continue doing something that's difficult or new, it actually gets relegated to a different place altogether in the brain and stored. And so then when you're doing that task in the future, um, it doesn't doesn't take as much brain power. So a good example, this is driving. Like when you're learning how to drive, your, your whole frontal lobe, you know, is, is lit up like a Christmas tree because you're, you're having to think about each step. Okay, push the gas, yeah. turn the wheel, use my blinker, all of that stuff, right? But now when I drive, it, I'm, not, I'm thinking about something else altogether because it's just totally second nature and habitual. And just realizing, you know, how many times in my life have I started something, you know, a Bible reading plan, uh, exercise regimen, whatever it is. And did it for a week or two or three and then stopped right? yeah. <laughs> before I actually pushed through that crucial window of habit formation where not that it would be like effortless completely, but it's much easier uh, once it becomes habit uh, and wow. far more likely to stick in your life. And so that was a huge takeaway for me. It's like, man, even if you are stinking at it, like even if like your exercise is plodding around the block for the first a week or two, yeah. just keep doing it. That's not the point. It's not the point of how much you're doing each day. The point is that you are doing it because you're kind of rewiring your brain to make it a permanent feature of your behavior. Wow, that that is fascinating. I bet the frontal lobe is probably being used by the parent in the passenger seat too, hey? <laughs> no, I think that's the, the, the fear-based uh, <laughs> part of the brain. It's more guttural. <laughs> The obligata or something. I don't know. You're, you're <laughs> hoping that you survive. Yeah. Uh, you, you mentioned being around the right people as important a few minutes ago. Um, what do addiction recovery programs have to teach us about self-control? Oh, yeah, that that's huge. Um, and and I talked to people that work with addicts, and, um, and I just found that so fascinating because we might like to think that, you know, people that are addicted to drugs and alcohol, Alcohol, for instance, are very different from us, but I think we're all addicted to something, right? It might be certain behaviors. It might not be something that is going to totally, um, you know, blow up our lives, make us lose our job and our families, but we all have addictive uh, behaviors in our life that we need to address, and so we can learn a lot from them. And I just looked at some of the programs, of course, the most famous one, Alcoholics Anonymous. You look at that, and I realize it's just a perfect blueprint developing self-control because the first step is you know you confess your dependence upon a higher power and they kind of try to keep it generic right because they don't want to offend people but they, they realize that without that vertical sort of dependence on God that that it doesn't work and that's just a part of the program and then they confess and this is counterintuitive they confess their complete helplessness against whatever the behavior is in the case of AA it's alcohol usually um, they go, well, I forget the exact language, it's not in front of me, but it's like, I, I realized that I was powerless against this. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's important to do that, too, because if, if you come in and you go, you know what, say, say you're addicted to shopping or to porn or to food, and you kind of carry this delusion that 
I can stop this whenever I want. I've got this under control. It's not a big deal. You know, you'll never get over it because you haven't confessed the true reality of the situation, which is it's got your number. You're falling prey to this over and over again. So you need to come to that place, and, and you can you can hear the echoes, right, of, of Scripture here, <laughs> where the need for repentance, uh, for confession, uh, and and of course that's just true. This is effective at a psychological level as, as well as a spiritual level, because we need to do that. And then the secret sauce of all these programs is the community, right, um, that, you know, if you're an alcoholic and you say, you know, I don't really need to go to meetings anymore, you're probably set up for a failure. Um, that's why alcoholics, I talked to one guy who had been clean for 30 years. He's still going to AA meetings and pulling up a metal chair in a basement somewhere and saying, I'm Bob, I'm an alcoholic, right? You don't say I'm a former alcoholic. You're always an alcoholic because you're acknowledging your weakness and your dependency. And then you seek out that group of fellow strugglers uh, that are helping you, encouraging you, keeping you accountable. And man, as Christians, we've got that built right in, yeah. right? Um, whatever you're going through, there's usually someone in your church, in your community of faith, that's struggling with something similar. And it's interesting, too, there's a research, research on this saying, if you have a particular struggle, don't seek out people that have never struggled with it at all. Like, if you're an alcoholic, you don't want someone who's, like, never had a drop of drink. Nor do you want, though, the person who's living in total defeat, who's hitting the bars every weekend and getting right. blasted, right? That's not going to help you. That's going to drag you down. What you want are those people who have struggled but are overcoming uh, the temptation in your life, and you need to connect with them regularly to, to find freedom. Wow. This has been such an informative conversation. Drew, thanks for having it. I've got one last question for you. You, you dedicated this book to your son along with a prayer for him that you extended to your readers as well. Uh, can you share your hopes uh, for the book or for your gleanings on this for your son, uh, for your readers, and, and even our listeners to this conversation today as we close? Yeah. No, thanks for bringing that up because, yeah, when I was thinking about who to dedicate this to, uh, well, first of all, I, I dedicated my first book to my wife, you know, uh, if I didn't do that, that'd probably be bad. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, and then, and for this one, um, <laughs> I joked with my wife at one point. I said, if I would have dedicated it to my mom instead of you, would you have been angry? And she said, no, you can just go and live with her. Uh, anyway, uh, so, but this one, I, I dedicated it to my son, you know, he, my firstborn child. Um, his name's Athanasius, which is a, you don't know that name, go and Google it. It's oh, yeah. a... Uh, early church father who's just an awesome, interesting guy. Anyway, yep. um, but because as I thought about his life and all my fears, and you know, when you're a parent, you know this, you get it, you have fears for your kids, okay, mm -hmm. uh, of things that could take them out or derail them. Um, and I thought, of, and as I thought about my hopes for his life as well, like the kind of man I want to see him become, I realized self control is going to be foundational to all of that. You know, when, when it comes to resisting lust, when he's a teenager and peer pressure and, you know, following Jesus, all of that stuff, it's going to take self-control. So I dedicated it to him. And like you said, that's kind of the prayer I have for everyone reading the book. I, I pray that they would, they'd come away from it. Um, and this might sound weird, but with a clearer picture of, of God, 
of why they want to develop self-control in the first place, right? Because mm-hmm. that's the most important thing. Yes. That they want to love God, they want to grow close to Christ, um, and then hopefully that they would have some tools in order to move in that direction. And realizing, too, that we never arrive, <laughs> um, that, that we're, we're not going to be perfect this side of heaven uh, when it comes to this topic, but with a little bit of hope that they can look a little more like Jesus every year. That, that's kind of my prayer um, for myself and for the people who encounter this book. The book is Your Future Self Will Thank You. Uh, I recommend that you follow Drew Dick, at Drew Dick, D-Y-C-K, on Twitter, uh, because I think Drew is a full-time editor, but a volunteer comedian, and uh, he's really fun to follow. Uh, And thanks so much for giving us some of your time today, Drew. We really appreciate it. It's your Canadian duty being fulfilled. Um, I will let the Trudeau government know. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Let, let the queen know as well. Will do. Will do. Yep. I, I think. <laughs> Thanks so much, man. It's been fun. <laughs> yeah, you bet. Take care. That was one of the most enjoyable interviews I've done so far. And I hope it gave you some fresh insights and inspiration into fostering healthy habits that draw you closer to God and make your life count for God, which is really what our lives are all about. In next week's episode, I will be talking with Joe Carter about, wait for it, conspiracy theories. Talk to you then. Thank you.